I don't know, when I, when I hear a prayer like that, I think, well, we're good, we're done, let's just go do that. <laughs> Thank you, Jeanette. Um, so I have the benefit of having had a chance to talk with Jeanette a little bit this morning about, about what, what I was going to be talking about this morning, and she prayed in first service a, a prayer that was, again, so apropos, and she hadn't even heard the sermon yet. Now she's heard it, and she, she, she brought even more of it into it, so thank you. <laughs> so um, allow me to introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. Many, most of you should, but maybe there are a few of you who don't. Um, my name is Brian Croyle. I'm a member here at Grace. Um, our head pastor, Dave Hillis, uh, is um, away right now with his wife, Teresa, and their son, Isaac. They're in Peru, which is where Teresa is from. They're visiting family there, uh, and, and they'll be back here in, in a... In a um, I don't know if they're back by next week or not. Someone, no, okay, they're not. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, Dave will be back preaching here in a couple weeks, but I get the opportunity to, to speak, and, and Dave will give me the opportunity to do that sometimes when he's away, and I appreciate the opportunity to do this. Uh, I learned a valuable lesson this morning. Um, fortunately, I keep my phone on vibrate all the time. I, in fact, I had a conversation with my wife earlier about this, a couple, just yesterday, I think it was, because um, you never know when you might be in the middle of preaching a sermon and the pastor texts you. I kid you not. I got a text from Dave during the first service while I was preaching, and there's a response from him. Okay, uh, so... <laughs> um, we are in, uh, this is our third week in, um, in a series that we're calling Taboo. It's an interesting series that we're doing. And if you've been here, you know that um, we've done a couple different sermons so far. First week, Pastor Dave talked about the topic of politics. Uh, and last week, uh, Pastor Brian talked about men's roles. Well, we weren't just talking about taboo topics. We were specifically talking about how we as Christians should understand these topics? How should we approach them? How do we, as followers of Christ, deal with these things in our culture, in our church, and in our lives? Um, and today's sermon is going to be kind of similar. It's, um, as you, you may have seen, um, our topic for today is Jesus Freaks. And I suspect there are already some people that are uncomfortable just by the name of the sermon. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. What we're really going to talk about is what our perspectives as Christians should be about what it means to be a Christian. How being a Christian affects our lives and how it's going to affect how people perceive us. Now, maybe that at first that doesn't sound very controversial, very taboo, but, but maybe as you start to think about how devotion in faith and even devotion to Christ is sometimes seen in the culture around us, you realize there's a taboo element to being a true follower, an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. Um, most Americans today are comfortable with restrained, unemotional religious affiliations, right? But they're not necessarily comfortable with people who say that their faith informs, much less drives, every other part of their lives. It's one thing to talk about going to church, it's another thing to say that you're devoted to Jesus. And some people are going to be uncomfortable with that. Um, before I go on, I just want to say, I didn't say this in first service, I kind of wish I had, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it now. Um, I have, over the years, had the, the privilege to be able to speak here at Grace a number of different times. There has never, ever been a time that I have spoken here at Grace where I wasn't talking about something that God was talking to me about. In other words... 
I'm sitting in the seat. I'm not really up here. I don't have this down. I don't have this together. I'm not where I want to be. Um, I, just this morning, as I was thinking about getting up here and speaking, I, a kind of a metaphor came into my mind. You know, for someone who's up on the stage preaching, you might have the, 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 the perspective that that person kind of knows, knows what they're talking about. They know it, and, and they're sharing with you what they know. So I'm not up here as a professor, okay? I'm up here as the TA. I learned this last semester. I got a pretty good grade, but I'm still helping because I need to get it into my head more, right? I don't have all this together. Um, that's important because I'm going to be talking about some challenging things. And, and so as I'm challenging you, please understand I'm challenging myself because God's challenging me. Um, and let's, um, let's just kind of work through this together, shall we? So um, putting some things in context, the term Jesus freaks. Um, that was initially associated with the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. And, and at that time, actually, it was kind of a neutral term. It was not a, a derogatory term per se. Um, the, the term freak in that time was just talking about someone who had a, a, specific, a devotion to something specific. I mean, you had acid freaks back then, right? Um, and there were Jesus freaks. They were people who were um, just, they were a Christian subculture within the hippie movement that focused on universal love, and they, and they really relished some of the, the, what they saw as radical teachings of Jesus. Um, but, of course, over time, that term Jesus freak has taken on a, a more negative connotation. There's this thing online called the Urban Dictionary. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's great. It's a place where you get to write your own definitions of things. Um, people post their definitions. And um, I went and looked at Jesus freak, and I can tell you that the vast majority of the definitions were very pejorative. They were very negative and critical. This is the top one, the one that's voted the top uh, definition from the Urban Dictionary. It says that a Jesus freak is someone who displays an unusual or embarrassing amount of enthusiasm for Jesus. Unusual. Embarrassing. These are very telling words. That's how much of 21st century America views those who are truly devoted to Christ. And so we, as Christians, we have a great temptation to try to, I'll say, moderate our faith in Jesus, right? We have pressure from without and from within to fit in and not stand out. Our culture seems to value diversity a great deal, but it's not generally open to Christians who are authentic in following Jesus. And whether we're conscious of it or not, we don't want to be rejected or maligned because of our faith. Our culture doesn't want us to rock the boat, and we don't want to be seen as boat rockers. Well, there's more to it than just that. There's also the fact that we haven't grown up in this culture kind of like certain elements within this culture, the comfortable life that we have. We like, quite frankly, this culture that celebrates self-promotion, self-gratification. We like our free time. We like our stuff. We like our reputation. We don't want to upset our comfortable lives. Several years ago, a man by David Platt wrote a book, a groundbreaking book called Radical. I'm sure there are several in this room that have read that book. The book had a very interesting subtitle. I really like it. The subtitle of the book is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. His premise is that we have confused our faith 
with the Christian dream in the United States in many ways. This is a quote from his book. We're starting to redefine Christianity. We're giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you and I realize what we're doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He's beginning to look a lot like us because, after all, that is whom we're most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands and worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. That's a pretty strong indictment. Until sometimes I consider the way I live, the things I prioritize, how much I lean toward ease. What David Platt is really saying is we have a choice. We need to choose whether we are going to follow Jesus or whether we're going to create a Jesus that follows us. You know, that, that second fake Jesus that we create, he doesn't, he doesn't require any life change from us. And so we can fit into the culture very, very easily. But if we're truly going to follow the real Jesus, it means that we're going to live and act and speak and prioritize differently than the dominant culture. My friends, we will be taboo. But that shouldn't surprise us because the same was true of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Last week, Pastor Brian um, reminded us that Jesus' parables and really his entire ministry clashed with the societal norms of his day. Um, We looked specifically last week at the story of the prodigal son and in a culture where everyone would have expected this father to have uh, rejected and disowned this, this son who had become both morally and financially bankrupt, Jesus praises a father who celebrates the return of his son by throwing a feast in his honor. Jesus taught that if someone strikes you on one cheek, you're to offer the other. Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples by breaking the bread, saying, this is my body. Pouring the wine, saying, this is my blood poured out for you. He said, the greatest among you will be your servant. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Ultimately, he said, take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. These examples from Jesus' life may seem counterintuitive and even radical to a world that doesn't know God. But one of the things that we need to remember is these same things that made Jesus radical and and controversial to the closed-minded people of his day also made him irresistible to the open-hearted people of his day. 
The same is true of us. If we choose to follow after Jesus, we're going to look different. We're going to look a little radical. But we're going to have the amazing opportunity to partner with God to, in some of the greatest work that's going to happen on this planet, drawing people into a lifetime and eternal relationship with him. You and I are at a crossroads. I see it in my own life, and I, and I suspect that if you, if you look at your own lives, you'll, you'll see it in your lives as well. We need to overcome our desire to blend in and fit in. To honor Jesus, we have to choose to walk a different road and be seen doing it. We have to be different and know that people will see that we are different. But as we do that, we're going to have amazing opportunities to make a difference for God. That's because within our culture, even though from a distance our culture is uncomfortable with Christians, individual people who come into, the, into close proximity with the undeniable love of Jesus are irresistibly drawn toward it. They'll see we're different, yes. But they will be drawn to Jesus in us and they'll want to know why we're different. Our big idea this week is this. Living our lives for Jesus will make us look different from the world around us. It is then that we have the chance to make the biggest difference in the world around us. I'm going to say that again. Living our lives for Jesus will make us look different from the world around us. But it is then that we have the chance to make the biggest difference in the world around us. Will you join me in prayer this morning? God, I feel your challenge this morning as you've been challenging me through the whole process of putting this sermon together. God, I pray that, that Lord, I would be out of the way and you would speak by your spirit to each of us in the ways that we need to hear. Lord, we do want to value that which is eternal. We want to structure our lives around what matters, not what doesn't matter. God, give us openness to you, to your leading, to your spirit this morning, to hear what you have to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at primarily, uh, we're looking at a number of scriptures this morning, but we're going to be primarily focused on 2 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. This is a letter, the second letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church in Corinth. And it talks about a lot of these things just brilliantly. I really encourage you to read chapters 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians. It's really powerful stuff. But I wanted to start off with this, this first verse that many of us are very, very familiar with. And it's this. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And we're very encouraged by this verse. And we should be because God is reminding us that that he has made us new. Just like we sang in the song earlier, beautiful things, right? You make me new. God has made us new and he has forgiven all of our past mistakes. But allow me to say that this verse, forgive me, it's more than just a get out of jail free card. A new life has begun. The old life is gone. The old life is gone. That means our old priorities, our old desires, our old ambitions have been set aside. As God is making us new, he's drawing us into something new and different. 
So what I think is very helpful for us is to consider this verse in the context of the greater section of scripture in which it was originally written. So what I want to do is go back to verse 11 and read from verse 11 up through 17. Paul says this, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. If it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. If we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Do you see some of the interesting language that Paul used there, particularly in verses 13 and 14? He said, if it appears that we're crazy, it's for the glory of God. Whether we look crazy or sane, Christ's love controls us. We have died to our old selves. Paul's not talking here about a simple salvation prayer, is he? Paul is speaking about a complete cultural transplant we have been lifted out of the cultural paradigm in which we in the world around us and placed into the kingdom of god's son right we've been placed into the kingdom of god's son led by his spirit and so we are no longer subject to the trappings of this world it's value systems it's pride it's endless toil for personal gain we live under a different law and under a different set of priorities i actually want to go back i want to look at verse 15 because I want to make sure we don't miss it. But I'm going to do something a little bit sneaky here. I want you to follow along with me. Don't go back in your Bibles yet and look at all of verse 15. Just stay with me on this slide right here, okay? This verse starts, Jesus died for everyone, so that. In a, in a room full of churchgoers, there's probably a lot of people who have an idea of how that sentence ends, Right? If you see a sentence that starts, Jesus died for everyone so that, what are your responses? What do you think it's going to say after that? Our sins are forgiven, right? That whoever accepts Christ, whoever receives him will not perish but will have eternal life, right? John 3.16, right? That, that Jesus died for us so we could be forgiven, that we could be cleansed, that we could be made right with God, and so we could be in eternity with God. That is salvation, and that is redemption. And that is not actually what Paul's talking about here. <laughs> Paul's talking about what happens after the redemption and the salvation. Now, trust me, Paul talks plenty about the salvation and redemption part, so he's not de de denying that. But he's talking about what comes after when Jesus begins the work of sanctification and purification, the part where Jesus changes our lives. This is what all of verse 15 says. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves, they'll live for Christ. He died for us, so that we will live for him. That's sanctification. 
That's a changed life that responds to what God has done to us and says, I'm going to live differently now. I'm going to look different now because God has called me to that. As 21st century American Christians, I believe our biggest threat to authenticity is trying to fit Jesus into our comfortable lifestyle. When I look at myself, in many ways, I still try to live for myself rather than trying to live for Jesus. That's because our culture is fine with us aligning with a Christian faith tradition so long as it doesn't overly inform the rest of our lives, right? So long as we look like everybody else, we can believe whatever we want to. We can show up at church on a Sunday so long as it doesn't command any more devotion from us than showing up on the golf course on Saturday morning. But if you remember the recent series we did here called Decluttering Christianity, Dave really opened up for us this idea of Jesus plus nothing. Our faith is all about Jesus and Jesus alone, the, 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 the um, sufficiency of Christ. We learned that Jesus plus anything else is less than Christianity, and that's because the anything detracts from our devotion to Christ. So when we try to hang on to our old lives, we're still trying to keep some of those somethings along for the ride. Well, what are some of those somethings that we might try to keep and bring along? How about Jesus plus ambition, right? Success at work. There's nothing wrong with being successful at work, but is that what drives us? Is that our goal? Do we put more focus on that than on Jesus? What about Jesus plus recreation? This one's a tough one for me. I'm leaving on vacation in a week, right? And I'm looking forward to it. But am I focused on my vacation? Or am I focused on serving Christ? Even while we're on vacation. (laughs) And my wife looks at me and smiles and says, yes. (laughs) She's challenged me to things like that before. How about Jesus plus consumerism? The new car, the new kitchen. How about Jesus plus reputation? What people think about us how we appear to others. These are other things that we may try to bring along for the ride in our relationship with Jesus. But anything that competes with our devotion to Christ is idolatry. And Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Does that sound radical to you? Does that sound too harsh? Like a faith like that is a little bit too much? I guess God challenged me on that, and I want to share you some thoughts with you on this. I'd like to suggest that what we might refer to as radical faith is in actuality not radical at all in light of the proper presuppositions. What do I mean by that? If Jesus truly is the Son of God, and he came to this earth and became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place, was raised from the dead, is ascended to the Father, and is coming back to bring all of us into perfect union with God forever, then the radical devotion that seems taboo to the world around us is in fact the only logical, sensible response 
Jesus' love and grace are at the very center of the universe. We exist. We exist for the purpose of bringing glory to God. That is why we live. And so, our lives shouldn't demonstrate a measured and comfortable and reasonable enthusiasm for Jesus. Our lives maybe should demonstrate an unusual and, dare I say, maybe even a little embarrassing enthusiasm for Jesus. Because our God deserves it. Because anything less than that is less than true worship. It's less than he deserves. So if that kind of devotion to Christ isn't radical, what is radical? Well, unfortunately, there is something that I would say is radical in Christians, and it's not a good thing. What's radical in the lives of Christians is all of those unredeemed parts of our lives that are indistinguishable from the world around us. If Jesus has done so much for us, how could we offer so little in return? How can our lives not be changed? Hypocrisy, at its worst is saying that we belong to the kingdom of God while living by the standards of this world. How much do I do that? How much do we do that? I want you to hear these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 and hear the the intensity of his language here. He says, as God's partners, we beg you, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. We beg you not to accept God's marvelous gift, his grace, his love, and then ignore it. Does my life show gratitude for the marvelous gift of God's grace, his compassion, the life that he has for me? Or does much of my life look like that doesn't matter, like I'm ignoring it? There was a Christian artist uh, that I have loved for decades, um, a guy by the name of Charlie Peacock. Um, Back in the 90s, uh, actually 25 years ago, he recorded a song called William and Maggie that talks about this this very subject. And it's just, it's lovely metaphorical language and yet I think extremely powerful. And I want to share this with you. In this song, Charlie says this, It always amazed me how someone could come to the edge of the world drop a stone down the side and turn and return to the very same life. I've been thinking about you and me and everybody in between. It it seems we've suffered one too many dreams of things that weren't so bad. It's just they were never things we could trust. Are we still pretending they're enough? Can we look into the amazing grace and love and power and majesty of God and turn around and be unchanged? And can we live our lives as if the temporal stuff of this earth, our possessions, our belongings, our reputation, all those things are enough to satisfy us? That's our challenge. 
I realized that I've got to stop pretending. And I think some of you would agree with me. We need to stop pretending and we need to prioritize what's real and what's eternal instead of what's going to blow away and burn away. But I will say this, for those of us who do take that courageous step to set aside what's temporal for what's real and follow after Jesus, there's one thing that is absolutely going to happen. We're going to come up against opposition. We're going to come up against opposition that's both earthly and spiritual. Because you absolutely can expect opposition when you stand up to live your life for God. You know, if you think about this whole concept of this series, taboo, the idea of opposition is kind of, kind of goes hand in hand with being taboo because um, if something's not taboo, it's accepted in culture. And if something's accepted, there's no reason to oppose it, right? It's perfectly fine. Go ahead and do that. But when you start to do something that's not accepted, something that's out there, something that's different, something that's taboo, that's when opposition is going to rise. So... Those who make life choices that are acceptable in the eyes of the world need not fear any opposition. You won't have any. But if we make different choices that make us look taboo, and we choose to be countercultural in ways that honor God, we will experience opposition. First, we're going to experience it from our enemy, right? If we stand up to live for God, our enemy is going to fight back because we pose a threat to him. As soon as we stand up for God, he's going to show up. But I'll, I'll tell you this. Remember this. Greater is he that's in us than he's in the world. Amen? But that's not the only opposition we're going to face. We're going to experience opposition from the culture around us as well. Now let me say this. I, 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 hopefully this is clear, but I, I think I, it's valuable for me to say this. We want to be taboo, and we want to experience oppositions for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. What do I mean by that? There are reasons why the term Jesus freak has gotten a negative connotation, right? There are a lot of people out there who are called Jesus freaks because of their judgmentalism, their arrogance, and how critical they are of everyone around them. That is not what we are called to. In fact, as Jesus freaks, (laughs) we should be The exact opposite of that. We should be humble and compassionate in our efforts to reconcile the world to God, to reach out and love to others. We are revolutionaries for Jesus, not for a religious tradition or for a moral code. We need to remember that. We are driven by Jesus' love, not a religious tradition or a moral code. Now, Paul talks about It's very interesting. Paul talks about that even when you are doing the right things and you are following after God in the right way, you are going to experience opposition. And he talks about it in in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. He says, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. In other words, we have experienced opposition. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. In other words, we shall love in grace, 
not aggression and judgment. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. To Paul, it was immaterial how he was treated by the world around him. He was just driven by the desire to serve his Lord. And, I will say, driven by the desire to see people changed by the same God. I, uh, I recently had the, the privilege of hearing a sermon by Chris Beal. Chris is the uh, lead pastor at Life Church in Oklahoma City. And um, there, are, there are a number of things that I'm talking about today that were spawned from hearing things he said. There's a couple quotes I have in here. Um, and so I'm really grateful to him because uh, it really influenced some of the thoughts that went into this. But one of the things I wanted to share from that was a scripture that he brought forward from 1 John. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. Um, it's simple, and yet, as it is with John all the time, by the way, if you've ever read John's stuff, the language is simple, the theology is really hard. Um, <laughs> but here he says this, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world... You do not have the love of the Father in you. When you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. I want to look at both of those pieces and, 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 and kind of expand on those a little bit um, based on, on, on what Chris uh, shared and I really, I really resonate with. Um, the first thing is this. What does it look like to love the world? Well, we've already kind of talked about that. It's, in the U.S., it looks a whole lot like the American dream. Um, we've modernized the American dream now, by the way. Um, now it, it's four-letter four, four uh, things that you text, like live your best life or you do you. Are these familiar phrases? It, it's just the 21st century version of the American dream. It's really just the desire to make enough and be comfortable enough to do the things you want to do. In our culture, most people, and we ourselves, even as Christians sometimes, act as if we want to build a life for ourselves where God isn't necessary. Do you realize that? We're trying to build a life where God isn't necessary, a life of ease. And we tend toward a life of ease rather than tending toward a life of struggle. There was something that Chris said that really struck home with me and, and I, I wanted to share it with you as well. He said this, you cannot at the same time pursue comfort and walk by faith. You cannot pursue comfort and walk by faith. Well, why is that? Because when we walk by faith, we are driven by the things that drive the heart of God. And when God drives us, he drives us into hard places where the pain is because that's where his heart is gone. That's where the need is, and that's where he sends us. And those places aren't comfortable, but they are beautiful because they're places where God works and we can work with him. But we tend toward ease instead of toward a life of struggle. The second part of this verse, it says, if you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And Chris said, and I, I tend to agree with him, that he doesn't think that what John is saying is that if you love the world, you don't love God. But rather that if you love the world, then God's love is not flowing through you to the world around you the way it should. Right? If, if you are focused on and driven by the things of this world, then you're not allowing yourself to be driven by 
the things that drive the heart of God. You're not allowing your heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And we can become desensitized to the pain in the world around us if we are focused on the things of this world. One thing that Chris said that really struck me, and as we went through the scriptures, it makes perfect sense. I've never thought of this before, but he said, if you're a Christian, part of your life story is to share in the sufferings of Christ. You realize that? It says that in 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it says it in other places as well. Part of our life story as Christians is to share in the sufferings of Christ. He suffered for us, but we also share in those sufferings so that we can bring comfort to others in their suffering. We need to embrace what I would call a divine discomfort. We should not be comfortable with this world the way it is. This world is not the way God intended it. This world is broken and fallen, and there are people that are lost and hurting, and we should not be comfortable with that. So we need to embrace this divine discomfort. And when we do embrace that divine discomfort, we're going to see two things that happen from that. The first thing that happens is that we're going to develop endurance. And we're going to develop character in us. And the second thing that happens when we embrace divine discomfort is then God enables us to comfort others. I want to look at a few scriptures that, that reinforce this. First of all, how does embracing divine discomfort develop endurance in us? James says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When troubles come your way, consider it joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Now, I don't know if this this makes sense to you or not, but let me put it in a different perspective here. Um, I think many of you would recognize that discomfort develops strength and endurance if you're talking about Physical activity, okay? Exercise. Exercise can be uncomfortable, right? So let's take my personal favorite, the plank. Do people know what the plank is? The plank is where you get down, you hold your... Well, basically what it is, is the plank is when your abdomen rips open. Um, It's horrible, it's awful. But I tell you what, if you do planks every day for a couple of weeks for a few months, and you keep doing it, what's going to happen? You're going to get ripped! (laughs) Right? It's going to develop strength, and your muscles are going to gain endurance. That's a natural thing. We all understand this with, with, with exercise. Well, let me tell you, if that is true for our bodies, it is true for our spirits. When we move into the discomfort of this life, when we seek God in the midst of struggle and when we enter into struggles with others to help them, God is developing endurance and strength in us. He is creating that endurance, that strength in our spirits to be able to go on, to be able to continue to grow and to make a difference. And if God can strengthen us in the midst of our, of our own suffering, then he can help use us. He can use us to help those 
who are also struggling and are still weak. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. The more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. When we jump into the midst, sorry, when we, when we meet others in the midst of their pain and suffering, rather than running away, rather than avoiding, we are to jump right in the middle of it with them. We are to meet them there, to love them, to encourage them, to lift them up, to help bear their burdens. We're able to help them because God has met us in our suffering. This morning, I want to ask you what is maybe a simple and maybe a difficult question. How much does the pain and suffering in the world around you bother you? How much does the pain and suffering in the world bother you? What have you done to combat it? What have you done to fight against that pain and suffering? I ask for this reason. If we are emotionally insulated from the pain of this world, then we need to ask ourselves what worldly comforts and worldly priorities have stolen our attention. Our eyes aren't on the right place. If we can't feel the pain in the world around us, it's an indication that our priorities are in the wrong place. And rather than seeking after the heart of God, we're seeking after the things of this world. Paul reminds us that we have been sent as ambassadors. That's, that's our job. We are ambassadors to this world. We are sent as emissaries of the kingdom of God to this world with a message of peace and reconciliation. God wants to make a peace treaty between himself and the world, and we are the ambassadors bringing that treaty of peace to everyone. That's our job. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20 say this. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Does that sound radical to you? Does it sound radical that the God of the universe would make his appeal through us? And that we would plead, that we would plead with people, please come back to God. He loves you. He wants you. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Does that seem radical to you? If so, I think it's a pretty darn good kind of radical. What is radical in us? It is the radical, unconditional, never-ending love of God. It is our unwavering devotion to share that love with the world.
That's what's radical in us. That's what should be radical in us. The world is not accustomed to the love of God. They're not accustomed to an undying, unconditional love. But did you know that everybody wants it? Even the hardest hearts. They want the love of God, whether they know it or not. The brokenness, the anger, the hurting is all in place of the missing love of God that they so desperately need. You and I, we have all received this amazing undying love of God. Now is our opportunity to share it. Why would we ever hide it? Why would we ever hoard it? If sharing that love of Jesus with the world means that we're Jesus freaks, well, so be it. you pray with me? God, I thank you for challenging me and challenging us in ways that we need to be reminded what it means to be your servants, what it means to be your ambassadors, what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and how it will make us look different, and how some people might not like that. But Lord, how others, when they come near to your love in us, will be drawn in and we'll be able to make a difference. God, help us to see in our lives where we have prioritized the wrong things. Help us to see what is driving our passions and desires where it's different from you and help us to break free from those things. God, may our desire be to follow after you and to see everything that you want to do and be a part of it. God, we want to truly, authentically be your people, be your ambassadors of peace and love and grace in this world.